following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Boy, if it's not one thing, it's another. You know, uh, that always happens. So right before I was just about to hit the start broadcast button tonight, uh, my the wheel of my chair pulled the uh, like uh, the outlet, the the power strip plug out of the wall. So like everything went dark and I lost my internet and everything. My router had to reboot. <clears throat> Hilarity ensued. But I think we're back. I think we're good and uh, should be able to proceed here. Okay. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number five of our Morgoth's Ring discussion. And uh, I know that this uh, Morgoth's Ring is is challenging in a lot of ways, right? Morgoth's Ring is a, is a, is, is in one way, you know, in several ways, it's really exciting. It contains a lot of really, really crucial material. Of course, I think the whole volume is, uh, precious because of the inclusion of the Athrobeth, which is one of my favorite things Tolkien ever wrote. Um, but it's challenging. And I know the first set couple sections, the Annals of Amon and the, you know, the, the revision of the, of the Quenta, this stuff is, tough, especially if you don't know the published Silmarillion really, really well. It's a little easier if you know that really well. So as soon as it starts to come in, you can kind of feel it right away. Like, okay, here, this, this stretch is all from, you know, straight from the published Silmarillion. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, I, I, I know it's a bit of a challenge. Uh, of course, it's very interesting as a whole, right? I mean, this is such a crucial time. Um, seeing what Tolkien was doing, what happened when he came back to the Silmarillion after the Lord of the Rings, as we've discussed many times. But um, what I'm especially interested in today, I called today's session the Silmarillion at Sea, because it it seems increasingly clear as we go, as we follow with Christopher Tolkien back to the revision of the Quintus Silmarillion material, uh, it becomes clearer to me, I think, that... It seems that Tolkien's concept of the Silmarillion is very odd. Like, I'm okay, it was always odd, but uh, is 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 kind of wandering. I mean, it's kind of, um, I, you know, it's, it's a, it, he's sort of at sea. What, what I mean by that is, I don't mean to say that, like, what he's writing is bad. I'm not saying that this stuff isn't good. What I'm saying is his concept of the work that he's writing seems to be kind of all over the place. That is, it's not at all clear to me that Tolkien has any clear plan, not just for writing the work or something, but like about what kind of work he wants to write. So if you remember in the 1937 Quinta, when we were reading the Lost Road uh, material, right before he started The Lord of the Rings, that final pass through the Silmarillion, remember when we were... Um, uh, uh, Remember when we were doing um, the uh, that whole you know so that that stuff which was basically the stuff that he was preparing for publication right when when he thought his ship had come in he had an in now with the publisher and was gonna and the, and the Silmarillion was gonna get out onto the shelves. Remember what it looked like, right? What it looked like was this. I mean, it, it was always odd. <laughs> I'm not trying to pretend it wasn't, but there was a. There was a vision for it, right? And it was a collection of different works, right, which were designed to kind of present 
the whole legendarium, the whole mythology. It included the Ainuindale, it included the Embarcanta, which was sort of the description of the cosmology and how the how the world worked and, and, and sort of what it looked like and everything. Um, and then we had the annals, right, which really were annals, like year by year, like a list of the main events to keep all of the chronology straight, the annals of, uh, of Valinor and the annals of Beleriand. Um, and of course, then we had the Quintus Silmarillion, which gave, you know, in brief form, the whole narrative uh, of the Silmarillion stuff. So, you know, you had like that. That was the core, right? The Quintus Silmarillion was the core. And then it was accompanied by these other. Oh, and of course, we had the Hlamas, right? The, the, the Tree of Tongues, the description of the evolution of the languages of Middle-earth. So all those things, right? All those things were happening there in those early stages. Uh, and... You know, again, don't get me wrong. I cannot possibly, I, 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 even in hindsight, right? Even in hindsight, I cannot, like knowing what was going to happen, right? With Tolkien's work and with Middle Earth and everything, knowing the, you know, the, the, the global phenomenon that Tolkien's writing was going to become, even knowing that in hindsight, I cannot fault the publishers who didn't want to publish that in the 30s, right? Um, I would not even question a publisher who wouldn't be sure about publishing that, you know, like in the 60s. Uh, but in any case, be that as it may, there was a vision, right? It was a weird vision. It was a, a kind of a geeky vision, but it was a clear vision. And it was now it is much, much less clear, right? Much less clear uh, what the plan is, Right. Um, the annals, as we've been seeing, the annals are growing into not annals anymore. Like, now, what's the difference now between the annals and the Quintus Omerillion, right? Is there a difference? Um, you know, when he's, the, the, the way that they're kind of overlapping onto each other, um, you know, he seems to have left the Ambarcanta and the Hlamas behind, at least as far as Christopher is, uh, is, is telling us here in these volumes. Um uh, he has redone the Ainu Indale, right? But so what are we doing now? The Ainu Indale plus a revised version of the Quenta plus a massively expanded version of the Annals, which is like more in detail with like more dialogue and stuff than the Quenta has. It's just, it's, it's not really clear what he's shooting for, right? As far as like what genre he wants to write in, what like what is the thing that he's trying to produce exactly? Um, and maybe I'm being unfair in saying that. And again, I, I don't even really mean this as a criticism, just as an observation of where Tolkien seems to be at this point. Um, uh, and and maybe that's maybe that's the point, right? Maybe all that he's doing really is kind of working through the material uh, in you know, just kind of trying to work through the material and then he'll sort it out later. Right. You know, and, and he sort of intends to sit to, so he's not even really letting himself think maybe about final publication form and is just trying to work everything through. Um, I don't know, but, uh, but we were watching how his genre was slipping and, and the narrative was, was, was kind of ballooning uh, in delightful ways, but, uh, you know, in weird ways, um, there in the annals, it just really jumps out to me now going back, you know, after having looked at that closely and going back to the Quenta, how 
peculiar this textual situation is, with uh, him now coming back to those two things, turning both of them into something that they weren't exactly before and which don't any longer fit together. I can't imagine now anyone, again, not again, hard enough back in the 37, but I can't imagine even Tolkien having a completed version of these annals and a completed version of the Quenta and being like, oh yeah, like part one and part two of the book, right? Like, really? That can't have been what he was thinking. Um, um, and yes, Brian, the fall of Gondolin as well. He was also writing here. We'll come back to some of this later on, but um, just sort of as a little introduction and uh, and overview here. Uh, but first, before I go too long, uh, too much longer, I wanted to, and we're going to jump right back into the text here in a moment. Um, but first, let me just do uh, my announcement because I have a big announcement. Some of you uh, heard me give this last night, but I wanted to definitely emphasize it here too. Uh, Signum is launching a brand new program, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and I just wanted to sort of let you guys know about it and share that with you. Um, Let's see if I can find my thing. Yeah, here it is. Signum Path, the Signum Path program. Uh, some of you will have heard me talk about this before, um, but really excited about Signum Path. Signum Path uh, is a professional development program which focuses on those skills that you get from studying the humanities. That's what we focus on at Signum. We, we, we are uh, a literature program uh, working on expanding outwards to an interdisciplinary humanities program. That's our vision for the next few years. Uh, I'll be talking about that more soon. By the way, little spoiler, planning to do uh, a State of the University address to talk about this stuff in more detail so you can kind of see both more clearly the direction that Signum is headed and the steps that are coming ahead uh, for us to get there. Really, really exciting time at Signum right now. But it starts with Signum Path. Um, and if you go to our, um, uh, our badges here, uh, you can see the different... Um, uh, the, the different courses that we, you know, so you, you can get a badge in making verbal communications, for instance, uh, with our little mini courses, which are a month long each, powerful presentations, two-way communication and influencing your audience, talking about uh, speaking and rhetoric. Um, we've got a writing badge. We have strengthening your core, thinking about marketing yourself, time management, mastering media, uh, and things like emotional intelligence, conflict resolution. These are all things that are just crucial for actually thriving in any career that you have, right? Um, and this is something I think has been really, really neglected. Uh, and it's been, it's been a kind of irony. I don't know if you saw, I posted uh, in a couple places, I posted it on Twitter. Uh, I published it on LinkedIn today, uh, an article that I wrote um, about this, my sort of frustration with this, kind of where I started with this when I began thinking about Signum's next steps a while back. Um, the way in which on the one hand, people complain that the, you know, the, the, the humanities are in trouble because people complain that they're not useful, like you can't do anything with that. And yet in the job market, you know, in the, in the business world, everyone says that like humanities-based skills, right? Like communication and writing skills and uh, speaking skills and things like that are all the like, things that they value most in their employees. And it's like, come on, people, we need to figure this out. So we are taking some steps uh, in that uh, in that direction. Um, uh, let's see. Jocelyn, where's the article if one doesn't know Twitter or LinkedIn? Um, well, it lives on LinkedIn. Uh, the, it should, we, there should be a link to it on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, too. Um, uh, there's a Signum Path page. That's one thing I wanted to just mention to you guys as well. Just We just 
within the last few days, uh, have uh, uh, created pages for Signum Path, both on LinkedIn and on Facebook, uh, and just invite you to, you know, if you're in those, to, to sort of to like them and follow them and, and stuff. Happy to sort of start some conversation there as we begin to uh, bring to the attention of folks uh, this new program. We have two different, just one last thing, and then I won't go, I won't go on about my new program for too much longer. Um, but uh, we do have two different ways to enroll in this. The thing that we're unroll, you know, that we're rolling out right now. I almost said unrolling, which is not quite the same thing. The thing that we're rolling out right now is um, our individual enrollment. So for people who would like to just kind of improve their own resume and 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 boost up their own job, um, uh, uh, you know, their 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 own uh, uh, their own credentials, you know, their their own skills. Um, so you can enroll as an, as an individual. We also have a corporate program where we take these courses uh, and we build a customized program that uh, fits with, you know, sort of the needs of, of a particular team, of a particular company. Um, and we customize the courses to be like, working with the projects that the company is working with and everything uh, so that we can help an entire team or, an, an, you know, a, a, a group of people um, at a particular company to be getting better uh, at these skills, at things like communication and writing skills and interpersonal skills and uh, time management and all of these things. So um, anyway, so this is our new program. I'm really excited about it. I hope you'll help us spread the news. Uh, and certainly, you know, if you or anyone else that you are interested in uh, are, uh, are, you know, anyone else that you know are interested, that's what I meant to say, are interested in this, please do contact us. Let us know. Uh, I, I will be announcing the opening of registration that's coming soon, um, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there and ask for your help in spreading the word because I am really excited about it. Um, okay. Uh, very good. Let us... Um, uh, and I say any questions you have, please do. I don't want to... I don't want to... I'm, I'm trying to resist answering too many questions on this right now because I don't want to get too sidetracked uh, from our class discussion. I always I, I always feel a little bit guilty about that. Um, but I do want to share with folks what's going on. So um, please do uh, let us know. And of course, also come to the State of the University address where I will certainly address uh, more uh, questions there and happy to answer any questions that folks have about both about Signum Path and about the other things uh, that Signum is working on and developing down the road. So uh, do if you have questions, you can send questions to path at signumu.org. Uh, and uh, that's a, a great way to get answers to questions right away. All right. Very good. All right. So let us get back to the text. Um, we were almost done, not quite done with the annals. Uh, so I want to go back to the annals. I am sure that this passage that I'm going to start with here jumped out to all of you and that you all knew I was going to want to talk about this as soon as you saw it. And that is the Oath of Feanor, right? Oh, be still my beating heart, the Oath of Feanor in the annals, right? Be he foe or friend, be he foul or clean, brood of Morgoth or bright Vala, Elda or Maya or aftercomer, man yet unborn upon Middle-earth, neither law nor love nor league of swords, dread nor danger, not doom itself, shall defend him from Feanor and Feanor's kin, whoso hideth or hoardeth or in hand taketh, finding keepeth or afar casteth a Silmaril. This swear we all." 
Death we will deal him ere day's ending. Woe unto world's end. Our word hear thou, Eru Allfather. To the everlasting darkness doom us if our deed faileth. On the holy mountain hear in witness, and our vow remember, Manwe and Varda. What just happened there? What just happened there? <laughs> Nancy says, so if you find one, you can't even throw it away? That's, that seems a little rough. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, no. Like, if you find a Silmaril, you're, you're, just, you're just hosed, Nancy. There's nothing that can save you, right, <laughs> from Fanor and Fanor's kin. No matter, literally, no matter what you do with the, with the Silmaril, you are in some kind of trouble. Yes, Nelson, that is precisely what has happened here. Uh, we are... This is alliterative verse. Not only has he segued into a poem, right? Not only has he cast the oath of Feanor into poetic mode, the poetic mode into which he has cast it is the mode of Anglo-Saxon alliterative poetry. So, what just happened here? Remember the frame. Remember the beautiful frame, which isn't in the published Silmarillion. What just... He doesn't comment on it. That is, Tolkien doesn't comment on it. He doesn't... We don't get any quotes, right? We don't get any, any hints. It just busts out in alliterative verse. But why should it bust out in alliterative verse? Is, this, is Tolkien just being self-indulgent? Yeah, exactly, Tony and Jennifer and Steve. This is, Kimber, yes, this is Alfwina. Remember, this is being transmitted through an Anglo-Saxon dude, right? It's being transmitted to the Anglo-Saxons, right? The text that we are reading is the text of Alfwina, who is transmitting to us what he learned from Pengaloth, who was telling him what he read from the writings of Rumil, right, back in Valinor. Um, and, or maybe he learned it from Rumil personally. I'm not sure how it was transmitted between Rumil and Pengala. That seems to be a little bit less clear. But, um, uh, but yeah, this is Alfwina. Alfwina, clearly. And we, we know it's Alfwina, right? It, this can't be Pengaloth. It's not Pengaloth who bust out in Anglo-Saxon alliterative meter, right? When reciting the Oath of Panor. We could, we, the Oath of Fanor, Panor, listen to that. The Oath of Fanor. We can be sure about that, right? We can be sure about that fact. This is Alfwina, right? Now, this kind of thing is not unknown, right? Um, for an Anglo-Saxon chronicler uh, or translator, to bust out into verse, right? Uh, I mean, for instance, that's how we have Cadman's Hymn, the oldest English poem that we know of. Um, Cadman's Hymn, famous Anglo-Saxon poem about the creation of the world, right? And there's the, the story is preserved uh, by the Venerable Bede in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People. But, um, but that's written in Latin, right? The whole account is written in Latin, and when Bede comes to the part of the story where Cadman is inspired to produce the first ever English poem, Bede paraphrases it in Latin, right? And we're just, it's the whole story is being, Bede is writing in Latin, that's what he's doing, so he does his thing, right? But a scribe 
wrote it in the margin in Anglo-Saxon, right? Because he knew the original, right? He knew the real poem. And so when he got to the part where it was talking about the poem that Cadman wrote, he wrote in the Anglo-Saxon verse in the margin, right? That kind of thing happens, right? Um, and so the story, right, the... the the meta narrative here, right? The sort of the story of the story, and this is actually meta narrative on a totally different level. That is, the the meta uh, the, the narrative of the narration. Let me say it that way, right? The narrative of the narration. Most of the time, Alfwina is silently transmitting to us what he learned from Pengalov, right? We have seen a couple occasion a couple of occasions on which he has broken into comment on it himself. Right. Like that passage on the orcs um, where he said, you know, and rightly we call them orcs, because, even though they're not literally demons, but they are kind of like demons. Remember that passage? Right. That was Alfwina like inserting himself. Most of the time he is just like, I am transmitting Pengaloth. Right. I am transmitting Pengaloth. And even when he says something like, quoth Pengaloth, that's because he is he says that when he's done commentary. Right. He is provide. He's not just providing the narrative, but when he's provided commentary on the narrative and then at the end of that commentary, he will append quoth Pengalov in order to make sure that, you know, this isn't just him blowing smoke. Right. This is not just Alfwina making stuff up. This is him quoting this. Like, he's like, this is what Pengalov explained to me. Right. Um, this is not me. But in those fewer occasions, right, which we saw last time, as I said, with the orcs and demons, uh, when it's him speaking to his fellow Anglo-Saxons, he says, he puts in the quoth Alfwina part, right? We also had that bit, that really cool bit, uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, oh yeah, uh, about the, about the, the, the mental tarma, right? Remember that part? Uh, where he's talking about the names of Teniquitil, Right. And he says, like, this is what we call Heofensil, the pillar of heaven. Right. This is what we call Heofensil. Um, uh, but he's like, however, Pengaloth tells me that that's actually not right. Uh, that that thing which we call Heofensil um, is not actually ten, uh, Teniquitil. It's actually the mental tarma from Numenor. Long story. Quoth Alfwina. <laughs> right. You know, so you remember that 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 little note? So on those few occasions, we can see Alfwina inserting himself. Here, this is Alfwina doing something. I, I, don't, I don't remember having come across any other examples like this, right? Where, on the one hand, he's not inserting commentary. This is not a quoth Alfwina moment, right? But Alfwina has made an independent literary decision, right? Alfwina, when he gets to the Oath of Feanor... For reasons best known to himself, Alfwina says, okay, I'm going to translate this into alliterative verse, right? The Oath of Feanor calls for alliterative verse, so I'm going to continue transmitting what Pengalov told me, but I'm going to do it my way, right? I'm going to put this in verse because, dang, this really needs alliterative verse. Or perhaps there's a poetic, an elvish poetic form to it, right? Maybe he could detect um, that Pengalov himself sort of shifts registers, right, when he cites the Oath of Feanor. 
maybe Feanor did recite the oath in verse. I mean, think about it. Would anything be less surprising than Feanor reciting the oath in verse, right? I mean, who would be shocked by that? Um, so, yeah, uh, maybe that's what happened. And he's so he's trying to represent that by saying, I'm going to I'm going to put that in verse so that it stands out and you can feel the difference, right? You can feel the narrative modulate when Feanor opens his mouth. Uh, and transmits this. Yeah, that yeah, was funny. Both Rachel and Nancy at almost exactly the same time said, uh, uh, you know, like suggesting awesomeness, you know, as an explanation for why he would do this. Clearly, clearly. Um, yeah, yeah. And Jennifer, too, yeah, it's totally awesome and better than just fa- uh, uh, saying that Feanor swore a terrible oath. Absolutely, it is. Um, um, Yes, and Michael, I, yeah, I too find it very easy to believe that Feanor uh, would have had a, a, a some kind of catchy and memorable verse oath. Um, um, but yeah, Chris, that's the other thing that I wanted to point to also, because I was thinking the same thing. Chris uh, is saying, it's as though the heart of Alfwina is filled with admiration for the courage and despair of the oath. Um, yeah, it is kind of Anglo-Saxon, right? It's a bad idea, right? It dooms him and, like, you know, most of his people. But, yeah, you know, this would be... Fanor would be a good character in an Anglo-Saxon epic, right? Or a Norse saga. Um, you know, there would be much to admire about Fanor, even in the Oath itself, right? Um... Uh, yeah, again, not saying the oath, absolutely, Stephen. I mean, the oath is certainly terrible. Um, uh, but, but also kind of awesome and kind of awesome in a sort of Anglo-Saxon Norse flavor, you know? Um, so, uh, again, there's nothing shocking about this, but it's really interesting. And here is, for me, one of the really interesting conclusions that, that I, this is the reason I am most interested in this. I mean, of course, there's just like the pure awesomeness of the Feanorian oath in, uh, in, in alliterative verse. Like, I mean, like, thank goodness we have that <laughs> full stop. Right. However, the thing that interests me most about this is this shows that Tolkien is thinking fairly actively about Alfwina as transmitter. We've already had hints of that. Right. Um, with all the with the, all the the occasional quoth Alfwina reminders that we've gotten through. Right. But I could have made the argument before this passage. I could have made the argument. Um, I could have said something like, OK, we do get occasional reminders of the frame, but I don't think it's obvious that Tolkien is constantly thinking of the frame. That he really, in his own imagination, as he's writing this text, is imagining Alfwina and Pengalov having a conversation, right? Um, I don't know how active an element of the creative process of the of the sort of the within the fr- how much it frames in Tolkien's mind what he's writing, right? It could just be that there are moments when he remembers it, right? Mostly he's just writing, right? He's just telling these stories, and then occasionally it kind of pops up, and he's like, oh yeah, quoth Pengalov, right? 
Um, like when something reminds him of the frame, he tosses that in there. But it's not really central to his imagination of this text. I could have made that argument, right? I think you can still make that argument, possibly. But this passage speaks pretty strongly against that argument. I don't think it totally disproves it all by itself, um, but it speaks pretty strongly against it. The fact that he decides, that Tolkien decides, I'm going to modulate in the Anglo-Saxon verse here, gives, makes Alfwina as narrator a more active character, if you see what I mean by that, right? Um, I don't think he is just forgetting um, about... Um, uh, I don't think he is just forgetting about Alfwina and Pingaloth and just tossing them in at odd occasions. Reading this, I am now thinking it's much more likely uh, that the frame was more a more crucial element uh, than perhaps had been obvious to this point. I've already talked about what a profound impact I feel that the frame has on my reading of the Aino Lindelay, that was where it really blew me over, right? Um, as far as, again, the, the way in which it recontextualizes the whole story. But this is another moment when I'm like, man, this is important. This is important. And again, I, I, it's now, I think it has gone up to the very top of my list. Um my very list of things I'm embarrassed to say because it seems so ungrateful uh, and uh, I shouldn't say it. But I, I have to because I have to be honest with you. And that is things that I would complain about about what Christopher Tolkien did in the published Silmarillion. Right? Um, again, I don't want to complain because I'm not saying I could have done it better and I'm sure glad he did everything that he did and what he provided us is so much better than what we would have had if it hadn't been for his work, which would have been nothing. So, again, I feel like a heel even in whining about this amazing gift that Christopher Tolkien gave to us. However, uh, with that embarrassed preamble, um, I... Um, I... My number, but the top of my list of the things that I'm embarrassed, see, I, you know, I lose my train of thought trying to get back to it, um, is the frame. The frame. Like, I, I, I feel like I get it. I mean, at least I can imagine that there would have been a lot of challenges for it, right? Those of us who have been reading through the whole history of Middle-earth, those of us who remember the early stages of this whole project back in the Book of Lost Tales, you know, that is the Middle-earth Legendarium project back in the Book of Lost Tales, for those of us, we can just say, oh, this is Alfwina, you know, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Toleresia. And we're like, okay, yeah, right, no, that makes sense, right? But how would that have made sense? Had Christopher Tolkien included Pengaloth and Alfwina, he would have had to completely explain who the heck are Pengaloth and Alfwina, right? Um, and I don't know that Tolkien wrote that. So Christopher would have had to write it. Right? He would have had to write a whole explanation. And how do you do that? So, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not saying that that's totally the reason why Christopher Tolkien didn't include it. I'm just saying I can definitely understand how there are some challenges, right, to um, uh, to the inclusion of the frame in the published Silmarillion. But what I would say also is increasingly... 
I think there's a, a huge cost, a huge cost uh, to losing it. Not only does it radically recontextualize some of the things, like we were saying in the Aino Indole, but there's like a whole dimension of story we're losing, right? I mean, like this, like what we can see here and what this then invites us to think about other places, right? Um, uh, I mean, goodness, like this by itself, this by itself, the presence of the Feanorian Oath in alliterative verse um, is enough for me to sort of answer a question that I know that I had when I was reading the Silmarillion as a teenager. And that was, why is the story of Turin Turambar so much longer than every other story? I mean, it's not that I dislike the story of Turin Turambar, though it was kind of depressing, but, um, but I'm like, why is so much attention focused here, right? Well, if I'd known about Alfwina and Pengaloth, it, it makes a lot more sense. Right? Anyway, 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 there's a lot of things. Um, there's a lot of things. Again, it's, it would be hard. It would be hard to do. Um, and, but, yeah, I, um, I miss it. I miss it. Um, yeah, it's not, Kevin, it's not that I just prefer a frame generally. Um, it's just that the way that I see, I mean, Kevin, really, in this case, it's very simply, I, you know, I came to know this text with no frame, right, in the published Silmarillion. I came to know it with no frame. Um, so I have that as a point of comparison, and now I'm seeing it with the frame. You know, like, as we're studying this, I, you know, and, and, and we're going through this carefully, I'm thinking through the frame and I'm noticing it every single time somebody quotes something, I'm noticing that and, uh, and thinking about that. So basically to me, it's just like, um, uh, you know, the same story, like with the frame, without the frame, with the frame, <laughs> without the frame. And I'm like, I like with the, with the frame so much better. And there's again, not only whole new layers of meaning, but it, it recontextualizes things in, in some really important ways, I think. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, that's just. Would any frame do? I don't know necessarily. I mean, would I have wanted Christopher to go through and invent an entirely new Bilbo-oriented frame? Right? Um, not necessarily. I don't think I necessarily would have wanted Christopher to do that. I would quite have liked uh, Tolkien to do it. Right? I mean, how delightful would it be to answer the question, who the heck is Alfwina anyway, by getting, like, Bilbo's answer to Sam when Sam asked that question, right? Um, uh, but um, anyway, yeah, no, exactly, Nancy. I would not have wanted to ask Christopher to start writing original stuff because he that was not what he was about, right? That was not what he was attempting. And, and I respect that. Like I said, I, I, I'm not... I'm not claiming to be reasonable. I'm just saying it is one of, like, when I look at the choices that Christopher made, the one that I go back to and I'm like, no, I mean, increasingly, that's just rocketed up my list until I think it's number one. Like, I, I think it's my number one, uh, you know, like, what if, what if some effort at the frame um, uh, had uh, been made um, yeah. Yana uh, says, didn't Christopher regret not putting in any frame? Sort of. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, he knows he sort of couldn't have done. The, the the one thing that he says, I think, Yana, probably what you're thinking of is what he says in the preface to Volume 1, to the Book of Austales Volume 1, uh, where 
he acknowledges that it's basically that the, the, the translate Bilbo's translations from the Elvish that are alluded to at the return of the King are the Silmarillion. Right. And Tolkien didn't say that explicitly. Like he doesn't actually say those words, but Christopher was like, it's pretty clear that that's the case and that therefore Bilbo is meant to be the translator. And so that probably should have been acknowledged, but I left that out. And that's the part, Yana, that he's kind of, second guessing himself on right and he does admit there like i probably should have taken a little bit of a risk and like just because you know and, and just even though dad didn't explicitly say that that was exactly but i could have probably made that leap uh and it would have been better to provide uh you know that kind of a hobbit frame even just as a kind of a prefatory thing to the silmarillion to say that this is bilbo's translations from the elvish um but that's not the same thing, Yana, as the decision that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about not just the question of whether or not he acknowledges or contextualizes the book as a whole, the Silmarillion as a whole, as Bilbo's translations from the Elvish. What I'm talking about is his choice to excise Pengaloth and Alfwina. The fact that nobody quotes anything anymore uh, as we go through the text. That, that is what I... Um, um, feel the loss of. Um, but I absolutely agree with you, Chris, that um, my gratitude for Christopher Tolkien not being Brian Herbert is uh, much greater than my regret <laughs> at the loss of the frame. No question. No question. Um, uh, but anyway... Um, yeah, I get that. Everyone's, everyone's like, let it go, man. <laughs> like, it would have been so much worse if Christopher had done that. I know. I'm just saying. It makes a big difference. But I've got it here. So that's fine. Then now I can go back and add it myself, you know, in my mind. Like, I can, I can like, as I'm listening to my audiobooks from, you know, I can be like, quoth Pengaloth, right? And, to my, and I'm fine. As long as I can mutter cryptic tags like that to myself while I listen to my audiobook, I can find peace and harmony. So that's good. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, being, being grateful that worse things didn't happen, but regretting uh, what might possibly have been. That's exactly where I am, Christopher. That's exactly it. Um, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Uh, let's go with that, Kevin. Let's, let's absolutely go with that. Um, uh, okay. Oh, by the way, sorry, and, and someone, Rachel, I think maybe was asking questions about the alliterative verse. I don't want to go into too much detail here, um, but um, but yeah, you can see this is following the Anglo-Saxon pattern. Basic, really, really crude summary. There are four main beats per line, at least two of them alliterate, always the third and never the fourth. So if you just look at the first line, right, be he foe or friend, be he foul or clean. Foe, friend, foul, clean are the four primary beats of that line. The first three alliterate, the fourth doesn't. Brood of Morgoth or bright vala. Um, brood, bright, right? Brood, more, bright, vow, right? Those are our four beats, alliterations on one and three. Elda or Maya or aftercomer. Elda, Maya, 
after and comer are our four beats and elda and after alliterate because by rule in Anglo-Saxon poetry, anything that starts with a vowel alliterates with anything else that starts with a vowel. That's why they don't do it that often because it's kind of cheating, but it's the rule. Or at least it's the pattern that they followed. Um, Man yet unborn upon Middle Earth, neither law nor love nor league of swords, dread nor danger, not doom itself. You can see how he... And there's often... a. Uh, Sejura, a divide in the middle of the line. That's also an Anglo-Saxon pattern. Be he foe or friend, be he foul or clean, brood of Morgoth or bright Vala. Um, just as you see, you know, uh, casteth a Silmaril. This swear we all. Woe unto world's end. Our word hear thou. Eru, all-father, to the everlasting darkness. Um, so he's, he's following quite closely uh, good Anglo-Saxon uh, alliterative meter here throughout. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Awesome, Chris. Glad to hear that uh, uh, you love this form of poetry, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy I could help introduce you to it. That's, uh, uh, that's fan- it is really wonderful, and it's so good to hear. Um, it, is, uh, it is a wonderful oral form. Of course, it was designed uh, totally for oral transmissions. So, um, yeah, James says he likes the pattern in the last two lines. Um, uh, uh, on the holy mountain, hear in witness and our vow remember, Manway and Varda. Um, the uh, witness, vow, Manway and vow, Varda. Um, yes, yes, uh, I, I like how those all kind of tie together. How holy mountain um, alliterates with Manway as well, right? Um, yeah. 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 Tomas, I agree. The use of all father alone uh, gives it the northern flavor. It sure does. Right. Eru all father. Um, Why does he call him all father? Why does he call him all father? Yeah, it's the translation of Iluvatar. A lot of people don't realize that. Right. Iluvatar means all father it's just it's just the translation it's also what they call odin right um in other words from the beginning right again this frame the concept that it was like an anglo-saxon dude who is tr- bringing the stories back from elven home to europe and that's how we come to know them and that's how they were transmitted is part of the DNA of this story from the very beginning, right? Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, James, you absolutely should. I would support uh, taking a vow always to read the alliterative verse aloud in all of these volumes. I would uh, be careful not to like append too many conditions to that. Like, it's okay. You know, leave yourself some wiggle room in your vow, right? I mean, there might be some circumstances under which reading it aloud might not be okay. And you don't want to, you know, call down the everlasting darkness upon yourself if you don't immediately read it aloud, right? But but in general, I, I think it's a good policy. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, again, the way that... Uh, Tolkien's mythology is tied to because transmitted through and connected to, you know, the 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 sort of Germanic tradition, right, um, uh, and Germanic languages and Germanic literary forms. 
that's deep, deep in the DNA of the Silmarillion, um, which you wouldn't know necessarily from the published Silmarillion at all. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> David, I'm not really sure about that. David says, would Fanor be okay? Like, if someone got a Silmaril and then immediately handed it over to Fanor, one of his sons, uh, or is it like, you know, you touch it, you die? It's kind of like you break it, you bought it, except it's worse, right? Like, you know, y- you touch it, uh, you you die. Um, I... I I would say I would hope that Fanor would be reasonable about that kind of thing, David. But at the same time, yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to really test the point. I just got to say, right. Yeah, Matt's like, what if you pick it up with the tongs? <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, I'm just saying I, I, I don't know that I would want to be lawyering that with uh, with Fanor myself. That's all. That's all. Um, yeah. Yeah. So George is asking, is the cottage of lost place still in Tolkien's mind in the 50s and 60s? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. Um, is it still in his mind in the sense of, is he still thinking in exactly the same terms? No, there are things that have changed. I mean, you know, it's it's not like the story is still in exactly the same place it was back in the teens when he was writing the Cottage of Lost Play material. But has he forgotten it? No, I don't think. Remember, Tolkien never throws anything away, right? He's got that drawer, remember? Like, I, I, I don't think... You know, honestly, it surprises me when things don't make it back out of the drawer, right? Uh, Like the fact that Tavildo, Prince of Cats, never made a comeback is a little bit of a surprise, honestly. Like, not going to lie, kind of surprised Tavildo didn't make a comeback. Um, But uh, but yeah, I I really um, I really don't think that he forgot about it. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> good. I know criminal says Arthur. It is just criminal. It's it's really too bad. Um, where could he have fit Kevin? Oh, I don't know. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I'm pining. Uh, like that. I'm like staring at the narrative, and I'm like, man, the boys are to build shaped hole in this narrative. I mean, has anyone ever said that before? But, uh, but boy, you know, uh, I'm just saying. I'm just surprised because you know he. Uh, he, he, I mean, just remember, remember, I mean, remember Odo, right? Remember how, you know, Odo was like a badger. He hung on, right? You know, and he was such a minor character, like, but even he, Tolkien couldn't let him go. Um, yeah, Christy, that's it, right? Tavildo could have been the assistant to Quinn, the squint-eyed southerner. Totally agree. Awesome reference to uh, uh, SoCal Moot this past year and our planned, projected uh, scouring of the Shire uh, TV show, which is going to be awesome, by the way, uh, when Netflix totally watches back their videotape of the day that we did SoCal Moot and uh, uh, ends up stealing and trying to produce that, which I gave them permission to do. I looked in the camera and told them they should use that. So we'll see if it, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Anyway, George, I agree. Uh, uh, the Cats of Queen Beruthio is, is one of the only kind of winks in the direction of Tavildo from later days, isn't it? Yeah, Arthur was thinking of the same thing. <laughs> the Cats of Queen Beruthio, last children of Tavildo to trouble this unhappy world. <laughs> That's probably a little more accurate. Um, anyway, okay, all right, okay, all right. Um, let's keep going, and I'll, I'll try to let it go about the frame. 
except that I, 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 no promises. Okay. But of his own sons, Oradreth alone spoke in like manner, for Inglor was with Turgon his friend, whereas Galadriel, the only woman of the Noldor to stand that day tall and valiant among the contending princes, was eager to be gone. No oaths she swore, but the words of Feanor concerning Middle-earth had, had kindled her heart, and she yearned to see the wide untrodden lands, and to rule there a realm, maybe, at her own will. For the youngest of the house of Finway, she came into the world west of the sea, and knew yet naught of the unguarded lands. All right, so he is, this is the first time he is writing, um, he is writing Galadriel into the narrative, right? Um, uh, so yes, sorry, let's clarify. Thank you, Marie, for reminding me. Um, yes, so Inglor, Inglor is Finrod, Felagunt, right? Um, Finarfin, uh, the elf whom we know as Finarfin, was originally Finrod, and Inglor uh, is his son. The name Finrod is going to migrate down to Inglor, and um, uh, and Finrod is going to be called Finarfin originally, and in my opinion, delightfully with a ph. Um, uh, but um, yeah, okay. So that's that's right. Are, are are the names Inglor and Inglorian related? Whoa, yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, because he cut the name Inglor, but he doesn't forget anything, right? The name Inglor comes out of the drawer uh, when we get to, Ing to Gildor Inglorian, who says he is of the house of Finrod, which means, right, uh, that he is from... So when Tolkien wrote that... So don't forget the date of this, right? When did he write this passage? after he wrote The Lord of the Rings, right? So when Gildor Inglorian, in The Fellowship of the Ring, says, I'm of the house of Finrod, he means, I'm of the house of Finarfin. He is saying, I am of the house of the third son of Finway, right? He is calling himself of the house of Finarfin, right? Which means, and Inglor, of course, was his son. So yes, he is saying, I'm of the house of Finarfin. Gildor Inglorian, exactly, Marie, means he's the son. So Gildor is Finrod's son? Relative, right? Kin, in any case, if he calls himself that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so Gildor is kind of important in that way, right? But the relevance, the position of Gildor in relationship to folks in the Silmarillion gets clouded by the fact that the names change. Uh, and in the published Silmarillion, Christopher chooses the later versions rather than the ones that are contemporaneous with the Lord of the Rings. And he never changes it. Right? He never goes back and changes Finrod to Finarfin in the published Lord of the Rings text. Um, so he becomes of the House of Finrod presumably Felagund, right, through the non-correction there. Um, but originally it meant of the house of Finarfin. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. Zach, I agree. It is a shame that Tolkien didn't write Gildor into the Silmarillion like he did with Goadriel. That would have been cool to see Gildor uh, actually play a role, even just get mentioned, right? Uh, to know exactly where he was and, and what he was involved with in the Silmarillion tradition would have been good. Hmm. Marie, note to self, <laughs> right? Sorry. Some film is tomorrow. <laughs> Remind me to talk about Gildor and Gorion. We haven't really talked about him much. Uh, but anyway, sorry. Yeah, that's a separate discussion. Um, Goadriel. So Finrod and Turgon are friends. Of course, we'll remember they're hanging out together, and that's when they have their dream and all that kind of thing, right? In the published Silmarillion later on. Uh, so that's not surprising. Okay. His setup for Goadriel clearly shows how important she is and is going to be, but notice how he places her here, right? On the one hand, this is a passage which is sort of derived from the test of Goadriel by Frodo's offer of the ring, right? What we see from Goadriel, what we hear Goadriel say in her response to Frodo, um, this is setting the stage for that, right? Her desire for power. The words of Feanor kindling her heart and her yearning to see the wide lands and to rule a realm at her own will, right? The potential of Goadriel to fall like Feanor fell, or differently, possibly worse than Feanor fell, is there, right? This is a setup which will be paid off retroactively, right, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring, which is kind of cool. Um, but notice, yeah, no, Rachel, this is the first time Goadriel appears. Uh, Goadriel, um, he first writes Goadriel during the course of the Lord of the Rings narrative. Um, uh, brief reminder, this is in the Treason of Isengard, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh they're going to go to Lothlorien when they escape Moria and the Balrog and Gandalf has fallen. Um, he wants to have a little elf wood adventure with them. So the business in the flat, right, with them, um, with them uh, uh, encountering Haldir and being taken up into the flat and then the orcs coming by and Gollum coming. Like that was the event at first. Like that was their elvish adventure and then they were going to go. Um, but then Tolkien was like, they should take them to see their, 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 their queen. There should be an elf queen and he should take them to see the elf queen. And then she starts talking and she becomes Galadriel. Right. Um, and then he's like, wow, she's a big deal. So I got to write her back into the Silmarillion. So that was, um, um, that was the invention of Galadriel, but after the end of the Lord of the Rings, she's become a really big deal. And so she clearly has to have a backstory, right? So this is, I don't think there were any references to Goadriel prior to this. I think that this is the first paragraph of Goadriel backstory uh, that he's written here within the Silmarillion tradition. And notice what he emphasizes about her. He emphasizes her potential fall, right? But the other thing is her youth, right? Okay. Also, her height and valor, right? Don't want to downplay that, right? Um, she's a big deal. 
um, she's the only woman of the Noldor to stand that day tall and valiant among the contending princes, right? So her, she is asserting her will even under these circumstances, but he also is emphasizing her youth, youngest of the House of Finway. Youngest of the House of Finway. The whole extended... Uh, she's the youngest kid of the youngest kid, right? So she is not being given a kind of matriarchal position. He's doing the opposite of make of putting her in a... Like, initially, in a matriarchal position. She's going to become a big deal by the Third Age, but she's not yet a big deal. Indeed, this is the moment when she seems to be stepping forward and kind of making something of herself for the first time. The only woman to stand tall and valiant among the contending princes. Princes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if it's quite fair to say that she eventually surpasses Feanor as the greatest elf ever. I mean, Feanor is still all the superlatives, right? Um, Feanor is the biggest superlative hog of any character that Tolkien ever wrote, right? So, um, I mean, even Luthien doesn't get the superlatives that Feanor gets, um, Luthien's a one-trick pony compared to Feanor in the superlatives department. Uh, so Galadriel's a huge deal, and she does, like, as he considers this more and more, he does elevate Galadriel higher and higher. Um, but this is um, um, this is certainly uh, her... It's not where he starts with her, right? He starts with her being uh, significant but junior. Right. And that is interesting to see where he where he how he approaches writing her backstory here, hoping to get to some other backstory tonight, too. Uh, last thing. No, not quite. Last thing. Almost the penultimate thing I want to say about the uh, uh, the annals is thinking back to what I was talking about, myths of explanation. Right, which is the term that I'm using for when Tolkien makes a myth which is designed to explain explicitly, like, you know, why does Ireland exist? Why do cats and dogs uh, not get along? That kind of thing. Um, look at how this works. But Morgoth hated the new lights and was for a while confounded by this unlooked for stroke of the Valar. Then, that is the sun and moon, of course. Then he assailed Tilian, sending spirits of shadow against him. And there was strife and illmen beneath the paths of the stars. And Tilian was the victor as he ever yet hath been, though still the pursuing darkness overtakes him at whiles. But Arian Morgoth feared with a great fear, and dared not to come nigh her, having indeed no longer the power. For as he grew in malice, and sent forth from himself the evil that he conceived in lies and creatures of wickedness, his power passed into them and was dispersed, and he himself became ever more earthbound, unwilling to issue from his dark strongholds. With shadow, therefore, he hid himself and his servants from Arian, the glance of whose eyes they could not long endure, and the lands nigh his dwelling were shrouded in fumes and great clouds. Okay. I wanted to quote this because this is, on the one hand, there is a very clear shift away from myths of explanation, right? Um, they come up with much greater frequency in the Book of Lost Tales, but not only are they more frequent there, but you get the big, the, 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 the sort of much more frequent sense that that is, um, 
like the point of the stories, right? It's like that's what the story was building for. Like the story will pay off, um, not just like through narrative satisfaction, but through an explanation, right? What is the thing, the phenomenon that's going to be explained by this story? Um, but, um, uh, but we can see in this myth here of Tilian and Arian, but especially the Tilian business, it's still there, right? That impulse to give mythic explanations for observable phenomena is still present, right? Why does a shadow sometimes still come over the moon? Why are there lunar eclipses? And you can see it. You can watch it happen, right? You can watch the shadow creeping over the moon, and you can tell it's a shadow, right? You don't even have to have a telescope. You can look with binoculars and see the shadowy edge. Like, it's clearly not something interposed. It's clearly a shadow that has, in fact, crept over the sun. Or, sorry, not the sun. The moon, right? Um, so we have an explanation of that, right? Morgoth sends spirits of shadow against the moon and they're constantly chasing him and occasionally they catch him, but he always fights them off, right? Um, and the question that I have, though I'll warn you in advance, I don't think I have an answer to it. The question that I have is, what function do these explanatory moments serve in the new sort of narrative economy of Tolkien's mythology. Um, the element that said, I'm going to tell you the real story behind stuff. That was kind of... Yeah. It would be one way, admittedly a crude, kind of silly way, but it would be one way, which would have some accuracy, uh, of paraphrasing the Book of Lost Tales. Right, you could say, what is the Book of Oz Tales? The Book of Oz Tales is Ariel, you know, dishes the real scoop about how things really work. Right? You may think you understand, you may know other mythology, you may, but here's what really is beneath all the things. Right? Um, whether they be natural phenomena like rainbows and moon spots and Ireland, or whether they be uh, things like. Um, uh, why do we have myths and stories about brownies and sylphs? Or why uh, do legends of the fair folk linger in particular places in Britain and things like that, right? Um, uh, why do we have mythology about the Allfather, right? All of those kinds of things. You know, so on all these kinds of different levels, the Book of Lost Tales was like the tell-all handbook, right, of like, this is like the real story behind all the other stories. That was sort of the purpose, right? Um, what function do the memories of that have? They are a kind of holdover, Kevin. I have no question about that. But um, I... But I don't accept that as enough of a reason for them. And I, and I say that because in some places, like here, right, Tolkien has gone out of his way to take out most of it, right? Like he took out 
the explanation, like, he took out the business about dropping the flower and bruising it, and that's why there are splotches on the moon. Like, that was in the original story. And he tells most of that story, but he has revised that story, like, exactly to cut out those bits, right? But he didn't cut out this bit, right? He left this bit in. Why? I don't think it's, and I'm not saying you're saying this, Kevin, but I don't think it's by accident, right? Um, Clearly, it would seem that this sort of myth, this sort of story, even on this kind of level, like why do eclipses happen? um, This kind of mythic explanation still seems to be, in Tolkien's mind, um, part of what Tolkien wants to see happening, right? Some kind of subset of what he's accomplishing in these narratives, right? And that's just kind of interesting to me. As I said, I'm not sure I, I really understand it. I'm not sure... Um, I guess, As I said, I, I felt like I, I do have a picture of how it used to work, right? Um, and seeing where it's going now, especially in the context of The Lord of the Rings, and seeing the ways in which he's trying to marry The Lord of the Rings and The, and the Silmarillion, as I said before, like, that's... That all makes sense to me. Is it... You know, is this... Do we just dismiss this as like an imperfect effort, right? Like he he failed to take it all out, uh, like he couldn't help but indulge himself, and in you know this is just a kind of a throwback for him, and um, he really shouldn't, uh, but he did, right? I, maybe it's possible. Yeah, George was just saying he can't help himself. It's possible, can't rule that out. Um, but um, but I wonder, I wonder. Um, you're right, Kevin. He does never let go of the mythology and origin idea totally. Right, no, just like he doesn't let go of the frame, right? The whole idea of somebody in Arisaia telling an Anglo-Saxon dude is going to bring the true story back to Europe, as we see, is still operative, right? Um, so no, he's not let it go entirely. Um, do we merely dismiss it as like, so this is just a lingering impulse which is sort of at war with these other impulses that he is uh, growing, you know, that he's, uh, uh, you know, that he's now favoring. That is the impulse, the impulse to self-consistent heroic romance, right? Um, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it's sort of just that. Um, but, uh, but I wonder, you know, I wonder if there could be, and, and here's the other thing I wonder. This would be the... So, okay. If I were going to write a paper on this subject, here's what I would do. I would go through these later versions and I would make a list of all of these myth of explanation moments, right? These explicit... Especially ones which claim to explain physical phenomena. Not just the mythological explanation ones. Not not just like, where did we get stories about elves? Um, because, Kevin, that certainly never leaves, Right. Um, I mean stuff like this, like why, why do lunar eclipses happen? That flavor, that category of my, of mythic explanation, right? And I would want to look at... So the first thing I would do is I would gather any evidence or even partial evidence or sort of hint at that kind of impulse. And I would I would look at those and see what kind of pattern emerges there, if any, right? Does there seem to be a pattern? Is there is there sort of a direction he's still wanting to take that? which might help us to understand how it fits into the overall picture. Um, I'm, uh, 
I'm not sure. Well, Mark, that's going to be exactly the problem that he's going to run into, and it's one of the reasons why I think this lingering impulse is so interesting, because there is something which is, there is another impulse in Tolkien, which we've already seen, which is absolutely diametrically opposed to this kind of business, and that is the fact that the elves cannot, would not tell incorrect mythic stories of this kind, uh, because they get it from the Valar, right? They, they know humans might make up stories about why there are lunar eclipses, which fit in with their mythologies, right? But the elves would know why, the real reason. They would know that the earth is round. They would know why lunar eclipses happen, and they'd be able to explain it to Alfwina if he asked them. Right? They would not spin for Alfwina this ridiculous story about the spirits of shadow assailing Tilian. Right? And that, of course, we've, we've seen that impulse. We've seen the round world impulse in him to say like his, that twitchy thing that Tolkien has going off in his brain, right? which is saying this, this doesn't work. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And yet he is doing it still, right? even in the context of this. So... I wonder. Um, let's see. Christopher says, is Golfimble an example of this phenomenon? Not, I mean, it's not evidence for this question. Uh, not only because, of course, he's way earlier, right? I mean, Golfimble, uh, who, of course, as you probably know, was originally named Fingolfin, uh, was, you know, that the golf the origin of golf story was written way back in like 1930. So um, it's not, it's not indicative of where the mythologies go on at this period, but even then it's, it's a joke, right? It's a joke of this same flavor. I mean, that certainly, it's certainly evidence that Tolkien enjoys this kind of thing, which we should probably have been able to conclude anyway. Um, But it certainly isn't necessarily data for this particular question. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Marie says this particular mythic explanation fits with his new interest in explaining things to a modern scientific mind. See, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, and again, I think, so that would be the next stage of my inquiry, right? After I made my observations and I began to look and see if there are patterns there, what, part of that pattern searching, right? Part of the way that I would isolate what patterns were there would be to compare and to go back to the earlier versions, right? And say, okay, Given that he's still doing this in these places, um, how do these places differ from the old versions of when he did this thing, right? Like the moon shadows and things like that, um, to see the uh, to see the the differences, right? That helps to emphasize uh, the ways in which um, uh, the, the, this, these sort of patterns that I think can uh, can emerge there. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, that's totally how I would do it. If I had time to do things like that, that's just what I would do. Somebody needs to write this paper for me because I don't have time. But this would be a good paper. This is definitely, this is definitely, this is, th- this would be a good Tolkien Studies article right here. Totally would. Um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and that's interesting, Sharon. Of course, Sharon is reminding us that he was just writing a science fiction story, right, in the Notion Club papers, and of course in the Lost Road as well. Um, 
uh, and it is interesting to think about that. Uh, yeah, whether like, I don't know what the cause and effect would be there, Sharon, right? If like the round world impulse now in the new mythology and the notion club papers are sort of happy, are, are they just like products of the same impulse or is one of them kind of influencing the other in some ways? That's kind of hard to tell, I think, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, I, I do agree both Marie and, uh, Okay, well, so Brian is kind of picking up on what Marie was saying before, too. Morgoth attacking Tillian does fit in with the current theme in this story, that Morgoth is dismayed by the light and hinders his plans totally. Not saying it doesn't fit at all. Okay, I'm offering really no criticism of this story as a story or as part of this story. All I'm saying is it's doing a kind of thing which most of this story doesn't seem to be interested in anymore. But not none of this story. And that's why I find it interesting. But anyway... All right, I've talked for long enough about something I don't understand, so <laughs> let's keep going. And we'll finish the annals. It's going to happen. But they would not give the Noldor... This is the Valor, of course. But they would not give the Noldor aid in fighting Melkor. Manway, however, sent Maya spirits in eagle form to dwell near Thangorodrim and keep watch on all that Melkor did and assist the Noldor in extreme cases. Olmo went to Beleriand and took a secret but active part in Elvish resistance. Okay. Uh, I just love these pass this passage. I love all of these sentences. Um, let me start with the last bit. Olmo went to Beleriand and took a secret but active part in Elvish resistance. Um, secret but active? I love that. And of course, I can't help but remember... Um, Olmo's words to Tuor in the late version, right? In the unfinished version. Um, the only, like, truly satisfying part of that story, of that unfinished, that tragically, horribly unfinished story, uh, the 1951 Tuor, is that we at least get the scene when Olmo appears, right? And Olmo's speech to Tuor is fantastic, right? I love it. Um... And uh, um, the idea of Olmo essentially rebelling, right? Uh, I mean, to me, it it raises this like. Uh, um, I, I mean, obviously, Tolkien doesn't depict it this way, but there's a kind of irony in his appearance, right? On the one hand, Olmo rising from the waters is like one of the most off-putting moments like it would have been to witness one of the most off-putting moments of the entire Silmarillion I mean there's there's little that is like more awe-inspiring uh, and kind of making you feel smaller I think than the storm at sea and Olmo rising from the waves uh, in the storm so awesome right and yet the kind of ironic juxtaposition Based on his words, like, Olmo rises from the sea and he's like, Da-da! I am here! And then he's like, Shh! The other, the other Valar don't know I'm here! Right? But I've got a message for you. Let's conspire! Right? Tell Turgon! Right? He's like, send, passing a note to Turgon so they can conspire. And he's like, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna convince the rest of the Valar. And this is gonna be great. Right? Uh, I just, I absolutely love uh, that, the kind of, the kind of irony of that. It's, uh, 
delightful. It's really fun. Um, anyway, okay. But back to the Eagles. First of all, there are two things I would like to point out, or rather, there is one thing I would like to point out, and then the logical conclusion of that that I would like to point out. Um, uh, my, the thing I would like to point out is eagles are not yet incarnate creatures, or are not at this point. Sorondor, as he was originally called in the Book of Lost Tales, was sort of a, a character, but he was always a spirit. Uh, he was like a Maya, right? And he's now, they're now, ex the eagles are now explicitly Maiar, right? They are not incarnate. Remember that the parallel between eagles and Ents, which the of Aule and Yavanna chapter has led us to make, right? Um, has not yet been written. Ents have been invented, right? The Treebeard chapter has been written, but, um, and remember, of course, that's when Ents are invented, when he's writing the Treebeard chapter uh, in uh, The Two Towers, but um, uh, the Aule and Yavanna chapter has not yet been written, and so we don't yet have any backstory of where Ents come from or eagles. The eagles, Thorondor, is, I say explicitly, he's not named here, but Thorondor is the chief of the eagles uh, that are sent by Manway there to Middle-earth, which assist the Noldor in extreme cases, as we know. Um, he is a spirit. He's not a bird. He's a, he's a Maya in bird shape, right? That is explicit here. Now, what is the shocking conclusion which it seems we might draw from that observation? When was this written again? 50s, right? Yeah, exactly, Nelson. So, why here? The eagles in the Lord of the Rings. Bird or Maiar? Birds or Maiar, right? Um, exactly, Stephen. This suggests, I'm not saying it proves, but this suggests that Tolkien is willing to, th is, is, thinking of the eagle's interventions in the Lord of the Rings as explicitly direct Maiar intervention. That's, that's, seems to be what he is thinking here. Now, it is certainly true, Kevin, that the, eagle, the ones in the, Hobbits are in the Hobbit are definitely birds. No question. No question, right? But again, in the Lord of the Rings... The old mythology and the new story are now joined together, and they're well joined together by the time we get to eagles, right? Um, this doesn't necessarily prove that the whole time he was picture he was writing the Lord of the Rings, he was imagining Maiar, but it does to me 
certainly suggest. I don't know that I, I I'm uncomfortable using the word prove because it's one data point and you can't really prove something. It's hard to prove something. You can disprove stuff, but you can't really prove something from a literary text with one data point. It's just not how literature works. Um, it's an inductive process, so you need multiple data points generally. So I'm super hesitant to say prove here, but let me just say it indirectly then. It's hard for me to see how Tolkien could have written this after writing The Lord of the Rings without at least being comfortable retroactively making that true of The Lord of the Rings. Note, we've already observed with the Galadriel passage, right? What we see him doing here in the annals is working the Lord of the Rings stuff, but he's taking the Lord of the Rings stuff as given, right? Like Galadriel's temptation, right? He's taking that as given and he's working it back into the mythology. And in that context, right? Knowing that that's what he's doing, he says this. Oh yeah, P.S. Eagles are Maya spirits, right? Um, that's um, uh, that's exactly what's happening, right? Um, yeah. Okay. So see, there's a parallel. Kevin's asking, you know, Sheolib's not a Maya. She's a spider. Uh, could Gwai here be like that? Possibly. Gwai here could. Gwai here could conceivably be like that. Um, Thorondor, clearly not, right? But then I go back to that fact that when he wrote The Return of the King, he had the two eagles that pick up Frodo and Sam from the slopes of Mount Dew be, by name, the same eagles who pick up Baron and Luthien at the gates of Angband in the Quintus Omerillion. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, I... Lynn says, why wouldn't the eagles in The Hobbit be Maya? Oh, they'd have to be retroactively. I'm just saying, in The Hobbit itself, it's perfectly clear that they're birds, right? What we would have to say, Lynn, right, is looking back at it from the lens of this, being like, okay, so, because there's a lot of retcon we got to do in The Hobbit anyway, right? I mean, there's a lot of work to be done in retconning The Hobbit into the Lord of the Rings world and into the, uh, and especially into the broader mythology, Right. Uh, so we'd have to say that passage in The Hobbit describing what was going on with the, the eagles, right, and telling us who the eagles are, has to be wrong, right? Um, that Bilbo, when he wrote that, um, didn't have the whole story because he hadn't done his Elvish translations yet, right? So he didn't know the real scoop about what eagles were. So that's why he included that in The Hobbit. It was a reasonable speculation, but they're not actually birds, right? And if Bilbo had been writing The Hobbit, you know, from Rivendell later on in his life, he'd have probably told a different story there, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so I'm not trying to push 
too far. In some ways, my mind kind of shudders back from the full application of this sentence, right? I really kind of don't want to go back and like look back at the whole Lord of the Rings and imagine that Tolkien is at least inviting me to retcon that into this world, right? At the very least, that seems to be what he's doing here in this passage, is inviting me to retcon the Lord of the Rings into this. It is possible we can find some other explanation, like the, that they're offspring of the Maya, just like Ungoliant produced Shelob and others, right? Uh, or, as Zach, as you were pointing out, about like Luthien, right? Um, yes. Uh, it could be that Gwai here is just like Shelob and Luthien. Um, I don't know why I've never thought of Shelob and Luthien in the same category like that before. But of course, it's perfectly true and slightly disturbing. But yes, yes, perfectly true. Um, uh, but in any case, in any case, um, uh, <laughs> okay, it's possible that the eagle was it? No. Kevin, actually, that's the one thing I think is not possible. The one thing I think is not possible is that the eagles in The Lord of the Rings are sort of proto-Istari, embodied like Gandalf. Um, and the reason I'm resistant to that is that Tolkien went pretty far out of his way to insist that the wizards are different. They're just in a different category. Um, wizards have different relationships with their physical bodies than the other uh, you know, Ainur have with their physical bodies. Um, if the eagles have already, I mean, if Gwai here is already the same exact order of thing, you know, Amaya who is who is incarnated in a bird, and the way that Gandalf gets incarnated into, you know, a crotchety old dude, um, then it decreases the specialness of the Astari, and if there was one thing that Tolkien was not about in the 50s, it was decreasing the significance of the Astari. Uh, so uh, that, I, I don't think, um, I don't think could be. Um, <laughs> Stephen says, could the wizards have done it first and then the eagles have copied them? Theoretically, but again, I, I, I don't, like, so what? They're like the backup plan, like, you know? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it. Um, and again, let's not forget, this isn't where Tolkien is going to stop, right? The Eagles have a have a different backstory coming, right? Uh, and their backstory is not their full back. This is just the beginning of their backstory. So I'm not saying we should all reinterpret the Lord of the Rings in the light of this sentence. All I'm saying is at this moment. Tolkien seems to be harboring that idea, right? Seems to be open to retconning the whole Lord of the Rings in this light. He's not necessarily going to stay there for the rest of his life, uh, but that seems to be happening here. Um, <laughs> Kid says that the, the number of Valar who are not poking a finger in as needed seems to keeps getting smaller. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there's um, there's giving the Noldor aid and fighting Melkor, and then there's you know, butting in, you know, um, uh, so yeah, you know, there uh, uh, there we go. Um, okay, 
let's move forward. It's almost the end of class, so let's start some a whole new section. Um, that's the end of the annals. Well, that's the end of that part of the annals anyway, because remember that Christopher told us at the beginning of this book that he is going to be doing an artificial thing here. Uh, remember that there is the chronological divide. So Tolkien comes back to the Silmarillion material in the early 50s, like in 1951. Right. And then he starts revising the Lord of the Rings and then he comes back to the stuff in the late 50s. So you've got the early 50s stuff and you've got the late 50s stuff. Right. Um, And some stuff from the 40s while he was still writing the Lord of the Rings. But I'm kind of lumping those in together with the early 50s stuff. Right. So you've got the early stuff, early post Lord of the Rings stuff, post slash during Lord of the Rings stuff. And you've got the later stuff in the late 50s. Okay, rather than presenting, and we talked about this at the beginning of the of of our you know of the of the book, rather than presenting all that stuff to us in chronological order, he's dividing it up topically, right? So he's going to give us the early stuff and the late stuff about the first half of the mythology, the Valinorian period, right up through the hiding of Valinor, uh, the rising of the sun and moon, and the hiding of Valinor, and then in the next volume. Uh, the War of the Jewels. I'm like vaguely pointing over towards my bookshelf. In the War of the Jewels, he's going to give us the evolution of the Beleriandic material from those two, those same two points of time, right? Uh, the early 50s, late late 40s, early 50s, and the late 50s. Um, in addition to slicing up the chronology that way and giving us this sort of cross-section view of these particular stories, he's also not presented them in order in this volume, as he's going to, as he reveals here at the beginning of the, the Quenta Silmarillion material. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Anyway, okay, so just here's a, a, a very useful summary that I wanted to kind of contextualize by reminding us of. Um, it represents, so he's talking here about the, um, uh, the it, sorry, the it at the beginning of my of my uh, passage here, is the second. T- so there are the two scri- the two typescripts, right? Uh, the t- the, uh, the 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 two Quintus Silmarillion typescripts. Uh, there's the one which is made at the beginning of the process um, the, of this revision process, and then there's a second one that's made much later. And it is the one he's talking about. It represents, together with much other writing of a predominantly speculative nature, a second phase in his later work on the Silmarillion. The first phase included the new version of the Lay of Lathian, so he revised the Lay of Lathian, the later Ainulindale, which we already talked about, the C and D texts. Uh, that's where the Round Earth stuff comes in and gets rejected, remember? Uh, so the uh, new version of the Way of Lathian, the later Ainulindale, the Annals of Amon, which we've just finished discussing the first half of, and the Grey Annals, that is the Annals of Beleriand, which we haven't talked about yet and we'll get in the next volume, the later Tale of Tuor, of sad memory, which he never finished, and the first wave of revision of the Quintus Silmarillion, much of this work left unfinished. So all of those things combined, that's what he does. As soon as he's finished writing The Lord of the Rings and he goes back to the Silmarillion, that's what he does. Of course, a new revision of the Lay of Lathian, right? Going back to his epic poem and doing, doing up a new version of that. Revising the Ainulindale. Revising the Annals of Amun, which we've just been talking about. Revising the Grey Annals, which we'll talk about later. Writing the Tale of Tuor, which we talked about in the Unfinished Tales uh, discussion ages ago. Um, and the first wave of revision of the Quintus Silmarillion, which we're about to talk about. 
That's the first, what, what Christopher is calling the first phase of the post-Lord of the Rings Silmarillion stuff. The years 1953-5 to five saw the preparation and publication of the Lord of the Rings, and there seems reason to think that it was a good while yet before he returned again to the Silmarillion, or at least to its earlier chapters. In these substantially rewritten chapters of the second phase, he was moving strongly into a new conception of the work, a new and much fuller mode of narrative, envisaging, as it appears, a thoroughgoing re-expansion from the still fairly condensed form, despite a good deal of enlargement in the 1951 revision, that went back through the Quenta Silmarillion and Quenta to the sketch of the mythology of 1926, which had made a brief summary from the amplitude of the Book of Lost Tales. So this is Christopher acknowledging what we've been observing all the way through, right? That Tolkien has begun to move away from the plot summary mode that he developed from the first sketch of the mythology through the Quentin Olderinwa through the 1937 Quenta Silmarillion, that genre, that plot summary genre that he had been developing and seemed to be thriving in through the 1937 Quenta, we've just been looking in the annals about how he's already leaving that. He certainly left the annals mode behind, uh, and he's, he's going into even more depth in these narratives and stories than he was during the Silmarillion um, uh, writing, the early Quenta Silmarillion writing, right? Um, so... Christopher doesn't tell us what the plan was. It, it, he seems to confirm, if anything, that Tolkien didn't have a plan, right? He says, but, but this new conception of the work that Christopher is pointing to is just what we've been seeing, right? It's just what we've been uh, observing as we've been going through. And it certainly seems to make sense that he would take a more heroic romance approach rather than chronicle summary approach to the Silmarillion in the post-Lord of the Rings world. That hardly seems shocking. Okay, so thank you, Christopher, for that overview. That's very helpful. Um, note on textual sequence, and this throws me every time. This chapter, so here, this is where he's talking. Christopher is doing his commentary on chapter one of the revised Quinta. Um, that material which is going to become the Vala Quinta in the published Silmarillion. This chapter underwent little change from the text of the Quenta Silmarillion, that is the 1937 version, <coughs> apart from the greatly expanded opening, in which most of the new material derives from the later Aina Lindale. That the much fuller story in the Annals of Amon was written after the revision of the Silmarillion chapter can be seen from various points. Thus, the old story that Melkor only began the delving of Otumno after the fall of the lamps is still present, and he goes on to list a couple other things which show that the version of the story that we're reading in this first phase version of the Quenta, of the revised Quenta Silmarillion predates the annals which we've already read and discussed. So... Although, again, I'm slightly tempted to grumble about that. I get it, because the second phase is much later, right? So, and since the second phase stuff is derived directly from this Quenta stuff, he wanted to put them back to back, and so he did the annals first, even though the annals technically come in between the two, right? So it makes trying to 
tell the story that I'm trying to tell, right? As, I, as I've been saying, to me, the thing I'm most interested in is to see the story about of how the story develops, right? Um, and so I would like to have that in chronological order, please, so I can be tracing that consistently. And this makes it hard for me to do that, right? So I'm just, we have to remember this, right? So try to remember that what we've been discussing for several weeks now is earlier by and large than the stuff we're about to discuss for the next several weeks. Okay. This first phase Quenta material, uh, is earlier than the annals of Amon material. We'll come back to this at a couple points, I think, but just try to keep that in mind. All right. Here's the first development that we begin to see. But Manwe is lord of the gods, and prince of the airs and winds, and ruler of the sky. With him dwells as wife Varda, the maker of the stars. Changed to... The mightiest of those Ainur who came into the world was Melkor, but Manwe was dearest to the heart of Iluvatar, and understood most clear No, sorry, it's not, that's not changed to, it's added, right? And then he adds, The mightiest of those Ainur who came into the world was Melkor, but Manwe was dearest to the heart of Iluvatar, and understood most clearly his purposes. He was appointed to be, in the fullness of time, the first of all kings, lord of the realm of Arda, and ruler of all that dwell therein. And there his delight is in the winds of the world and in all the regions of the air. With him in Arda dwells his spouse Varda, kindler of the stars, immortal lady of the heights, whose name is holy. Fionwe and Ilmare are their son and daughter. This sentence struck out. Next in might and closest in friendship to Manwe is Olmo, lord of waters. He dwells alone in the outer seas, but has the government of all waters, seas, and rivers, fountains and springs throughout the earth. Subject to him is Ose, the master of the seas about the lands of men, and his wife is Uanin, the lady of the sea. Her hair lies spread through all the waters under skies. Um, okay. First of all, trying, I mean, so although on the one hand, like trying to remember that we're now reading stuff, which kind of predates most of the annals stuff that we were talking about before is a little bit confusing. It's not nearly so confusing as trying to be really strict about chronology because some of this stuff we just can't know. Right. I mean, as Christopher is explaining, this text that he's producing here is from a typescript, which was itself changed and amended at various points, which is itself bringing together changes and amendments that were made to earlier manuscripts at unknown times. So it's impossible to really track which idea comes after which of all the other ideas. But there are some things here, certainly, that we can see which sound familiar to the state of the mythology that we saw in the annals. Notice, for instance, the way in which Olmo's description fits with what we see in the annals, right? How the how that is splitting away from Olmo as, like, the, the outer seas, which are kind of like space, right? And are not really water at all. Um you know, to which the oceans are only, like, for which the oceans are only a metaphor, basically, right? Which was really Olmo's element. Uh, and, and and how Ose, who was the lord of the actual ocean that we call ocean, um, was um, still his underling, but one of the one of the Valar, right? Remember in that earlier version of the Annals? Um, but we can see how the 
the shift of Olmo to be more focused in a sense on Middle Earth, right? More uh, focused on the waters, a more sort of traditional sea god, right? Than he was in the earlier versions. Um, uh, that's um, uh, we can we can so that's like sort of one one example of a resonance that we can see here uh, com, uh, with uh, with the annals. But of course, the thing that I was most interested in in this passage is, of course, the crossing out of Fionwe and Ilmare are their son and daughter. This, of course, was one of the things that we noticed in the in the annals. There are only a few things in there which are still destined for the cutting room floor, right? Things which are just not, do not at all fit uh, with the mythology as it's ultimately going to be presented uh, in the published Silmarillion. Um, there aren't too many of those, but one of them was the children of the Valar, and we saw in the annals him kind of doubling down on that. The fact that he strikes this out here shows, right? Uh, we were talking at the time, last week, maybe, um, we were talking about how the time is going to come, right? Like the, the days of the children of the Valar are numbered, but they're still around, right? The fact that it's still in his conception at this point is interesting. And thinking about even the conversation we had about Valar poop last week, right? Again, we see him still kind of thinking through the Valar in those ways. Now we can see where the, the, the impulse to eliminate that, <laughs> sorry, uh, has happened, right? Um, uh, to get rid of the children of the uh, of of the Valar, right? We have no idea when he crossed this out, but it's happened, right? Uh, and we will see some evidence if we if I just jump straight to the next slide here. Um, Christopher says this. Um, he's talking about the use of the word spouse, right? And how in some of the later revisions, Tolkien is going back and taking out the word wife when describing the relationship between, like, uh, Aule and Yuvana, right, takes out the word wife and says spouse instead. He's changing that all over the place, wife to spouse, right? Um, and this is Christopher's comment on that. The same change was made on the typescript of the Annals of Amon, and its significance is seen from the accompanying marginal comment, note that spouse meant only an association. The Valar had no bodies, but could assume shapes. At this time, the passage in the Annals of Amon concerning the children of the Valar was removed, right? So it's clear that at, we don't know exactly where it lies in connection with the rest of the, uh, the, the Quenta material here and stuff. But we can see that we're, we're, you know, if we were wondering, right, we were kind of wondering together, when, is, when, when, when are the children of the Valar going to go? Soon, right? Very, very soon. In fact, they're already being cut. Um, that, so that, change, that changing concept, we'll have to see what are the implications of that changing, um, uh, that changing concept of the Valar, right? How does the story change as the Valar don't have kids anymore, right? As they're not, how is that fitting with what seemed like the opposite impulse um, when he was describing the irrigation of, of Valinor and, and giving us the explanation for how, uh, why they have seasons and things like that, right? That seemed to be an impulse which made them more corporeal. Uh, and now he's backing down from the corporeality um, by saying, yep, no, they don't actually marry and have children, right? They don't bear children to each other. It's, 
more spiritual, right? The two of them have an association. There's this affinity between Yavana and Aule, which is being metaphorically compared to marriage. But it's not, you know, like don't be picturing Aule and Yavana's wedding night or something like that. Like they don't have bodies. Um, exactly, Jennifer. Divine pairings, but not married couples. And again, now that, that change and the no kids thing, it's a very important change in the mythology. And I guess I said, I'm going to be interested to see what kind of ripples we can see uh, there. Okay. Um, all right. We'll, we'll finish with this. Because we'll get we'll finish with our, our, our next case of retcon. With the Valar were other spirits, whose being also began f- before the world. These are the Maiar, of the same order as the great, but of less might and majesty. Among them, Aonwe, the herald of Manwe, and Ilmare, handmaid of Varda, were the chief, demoted from their positions as son and daughter, and now to herald and handmaid. Many others there are, who have no names among elves or men, for they appear seldom in forms visible. But great and fair was Melian, of the people of Yavanna, who, struck out on her behalf, tended once the gardens of Este, ere she came to Middle-earth. Wise was Aloran, counselor of Irmo, Secret enemy of the secret evils of Melkor, for his bright visions drove away the imaginations of darkness. Of Melian much is later told, but of Aloran this tale does not speak. In later days he dearly loved the children of Eru and took pity on their sorrows. Those who hearkened to him arose from despair, and in their hearts the desire to heal and to renew awoke, and thoughts of fair things that had not yet been but might be, but might yet be made for the enrichment of Arda. Nothing he made himself, and nothing he possessed, but kindled the hearts of others, and in their delight he was glad. But not all of the Maiar were faithful to the Valar, for some were from the beginning drawn to the power of Melkor, and others he corrupted later to his service. Sauron was the name by which the chief of these was afterwards called, but he was not alone. So we get, of course, Sauron retconned in, as we've already seen, but this is, of course, the first picture of Oloran, right? We get Gandalf retconned back in to the mythology. So this paragraph is to Gandalf as that earlier paragraph we discussed is to Galadriel, right? Both of them, over the course of the Lord of the Rings, have become major figures, right? Which need an explanation of some kind, right? Um, there's a clear need to work them back into the mythology. We saw what he did and how he approached this question uh, with Galadriel. Here's how he's approaching it with Gandalf. Okay. Um, what do you notice about... So again, remember, this all postdates the Lord of the Rings. So don't go to this passage as an explanation for things that, you know, as a direct explanation, like a cause of things, of passages in the Lord of the Rings. The causality works the other way around, right? Um, uh Yes, Bruce. Bruce says, so the name Aloran first came up in the Lord of the Rings. Yes. Uh, Aloran I was in the days of my youth in the West. Yes. When Faramir says that, that's the first time the name Aloran arise, arises. He's not there having Faramir quote a pre-existing story. The story emerges, uh, or rather the name emerges when Faramir says it. As 
is so often the case, especially with Faramir. Faramir can barely open his mouth without world building happening, right? He is, uh, Faramir is like the catalyst of world building, one of the chief catalysts of world building. Um, Yeah, good. Uh, Several of you are really struck by um, uh, the line or the phrase, secret enemy of the secret evils of Melkor's. Uh, Zach says uh, it, 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 it sounds like a tagline for a spy thriller movie. Secret enemy of the secret evil. Um, yeah, yeah, it kind of does. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Jennifer. In that way, Faramir is indirectly a prophet. Yeah, he just, it just happens, right? Yeah. Um, uh, he is retconning Gandalf, the spirit, uh, <laughs> the, the, the artist subsequently known as Gandalf, uh, as, so basically what Gandalf does and especially how Gandalf operates in Middle-earth. Turns out is it is so Oloran, man, right? Like that's what that's that's Oloran all through, right? Um sorry, retcon, let me not make that assumption. I keep tossing out that word. Uh, so that word that I'm using, retcon, retroactive uh consistency. It's not consistency, is it? What's the actual con stand for? I always get this wrong, actually, when I say what the... Continuity, thank you, yes. I always want it to be consistency because of Tolkien's phrase about the inner-consistency uh, of reality from On Fairy Story. Sorry, continuity. Retroactive continuity. So when an author um, has an element in a story which is retroactively made to fit into something that it wasn't... Um, such as, for instance, uh, Voldemort's Horcruxes in uh, Harry Potter. Um, and I certainly do not believe a, a singular word that, uh, uh, that J.K. Rowling has ever said about her denial of retconning that. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, this is, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a phrase. It's, it's a word that people have used to, to sort of talk about that, that whole story. And Tolkien, as I've said many times, is the king of retcon. He is so good at this. Um, the, the, the most brilliant retcon Tolkien ever did, in my opinion, is how he goes back and integrates the alteration of the Hobbit story. Right, the sto- Chapter 5 of The Hobbit needed to be altered in order to make it fit with the new story of the Ring of Power that was emerging in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, so instead, so instead of just sort of taking that contradiction and quietly changing it or something, having the fact that the original version of the story told something different be part of the later story, and like how Bilbo had told a lie, and that was evidence of the Ring's influence on him and stuff. Gorgeous, brilliant piece of retcon by Tolkien. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. James says it was very frequent in comic books when, uh, like, a new comic book writer would take over a series, right? And the, the the later writer wants to do something different than something in the original plot, so they retcon it back and change it around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yep, 
Yeah, exactly. That's just the kind of thing. So, um, uh, so the retcon version of Oloran here, right? The, the backwards projected what, meanwhile, what was Gandalf doing back in Valinor, right? Before he became Gandalf, right? The fact that he conceives his character retroactively as acting in the same way, being a secret enemy of secret evils. That's, I mean, that's Gandalf's, you know, that's practically, uh, I mean, if Gandalf had a business card, that's totally what he would put on his business card, right? Hi, I'm Gandalf the Grey, secret enemy of the secret evil, right? Um, uh, that's totally what he would do. Yes, Kevin, no Nienna influence yet, right? Good, good. That's an element that's still going to be added. Remember, Nienna's not quite, she's almost there, but she's not quite the full Nienna yet, right? Um, as we saw earlier. So, right, we, we do not see... Uh, Oloran's connection with Nienna. Um, instead, his direct connection is with Irmo, right? With Lorien. Um, not Lorien, the Galadriel's kingdom, but Lorien, the, the Valor. The Valor of Dreams, right? His bright visions drove away the imaginations of darkness. Tolkien is so good at retcon. Think about how that sentence retroactively transforms elements of Gandalf's character. Think of fireworks displays, right? You can't go back to the old to the memories of the old Took's birthday party and see them the same way again now, right? His bright visions drove away the imagine the imaginations of darkness. You know, of course. Gandalf the Grey is famous for his fireworks. Of course, right? It's so perfect in every way. Uh, I love it. Again, he's so good at this. So good at this. Um, his pity for the sorrows of the children of Eru, right, uh, is the thing that chiefly inspires him, right? Um, Gandalf's love for the free peoples is what brings him to Middle-earth, right? Again, we're getting the... We're, you know, so th that's his backstory. Those who hearkened to him arose from despair, and in their hearts the desire to heal and to renew awoke. Um, can't you see like the faces in the montage, right? Like if if it's almost like this is a voiceover for a video montage, right? Um, those who hearkened to him arose from despair, and in the background, what are you seeing? What do you show? Who, whose face do you see? Right? Theoden. Absolutely. Right? There's, 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 there's Theoden. Right? Standing up straight. Right? As, uh, as we get that. Uh, the next phrase. Right? Um, uh, and in their hearts, the desire to heal and to renew awoke. Now whose face do we get? Now what do we show on screen? During, 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 during that part of that. Aragorn. Exactly. Right? The renewer. Right? The desire to heal, right? And we get Gandalf's long relationship with Aragorn, right? Um, which in this sense culminates not in the Battle of Pelennor Field, but in the Houses of Healing, right? That's where you see the real Gandalfian, the real Olorinian influence on Aragorn, right? Um, and thoughts of fair things that had not yet been, but might be, 
but might yet be made for the enrichment of Arda. Who's, uh, who, who are you going to show during that half of the voice, the, during that part of the voiceover? Uh, Sam? I could go with Sam. Uh, personally, I was thinking of Bilbo, but I kind of like Sam. I kind of like Sam. I think either one would work there, right? Um, yeah, you could even segue to Sam at the tail end of uh, the desire to heal and to renew awakening, right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, I get, I, I, I'm not, I'm not like just trying to go all film film on this. I'm, I'm just saying you can, I love this passage because you can feel the texture of the Lord of the Rings behind it, right? You can see how he's not just inventing a backstory for a pre-existing character, right? He is taking, when he does this kind of thing, he doesn't just add a new chapter to the story that he already wrote. He does an overlay over that story, which gives it an entirely new dimension. And that is A-list retconning right there. Good, Jennifer, we could show Eowyn as well, right? Again, just notice how, notice this line of thought that we're having, this discussion that we're having right now. Think about how that sentence prompts us to go back and rethink all of the Lord of the Rings, right? How it, it you know, invites us to ask the question, yeah, what are, do we see some of these, but where do we, yeah, we see these kinds of patterns in people who are friends of Gandalf all over the place, right? Look at the difference between Faramir and Boromir. Look at, look at Sam, look at, look at, uh, at, at Aragorn, look at Bilbo, look at, I mean, look at Eowyn, absolutely. Um, Eowyn, you can hardly exactly directly attribute that to Gandalf himself. Um, but uh, anyway, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's really, it's just really, really cool to see, uh, to see all of this stuff. Uh, James, you're absolutely right. James Lieback says, as I've said before, he's such a careful reader of his own work. Absolutely. And that's what makes him so good at this. Um, not just that he remembers his own work really well, um, but he's a very thoughtful reader and interpreter of his own work as well. Just absolutely love that stuff. Um, nothing he made himself and nothing he possessed but kindled the hearts of others, and in their delight he was glad. Um, doesn't say anything about his crankiness, but that might have been a manifestation, you know, as a, a, a side effect of the incarnation thing. Crankiness might correlate with incarnation. Wouldn't surprise me a bit at all. Um, anyway, okay. Um, you're right, Jennifer. Eowyn was influenced by Faramir, who was influenced by Gandalf. So very likely, right? We can see, uh, doubtless, it's contagious, right? Um, yeah, yeah, good. All right, well, like I said, I'll stop there because it's getting late. Um, uh, we will continue with the Quintus. So we are, this, is, this has been a discussion of the beginning part of the first phase of the Quinta, which... When I went back to the schedule, I was very surprised to find is right where we're supposed to be tonight. We're on schedule. How do we get on schedule? I mean, we're a little behind now, fortunately, or else like I'd lose all my place. But I don't even know how that happened because I skipped a week. I skipped a week. I had to cancel class one week. So I bumped class up a week and yet we're still caught up already. I don't know. I feel like we've entered some kind of time warp that I don't understand. But um uh, anyway, there we are. Uh, and here's the other thing. We can have class next week. Originally, I had scheduled no class for next week because um, I was going to be away next week. 
but I'm not going anywhere, turns out, next week. So I'm going to be around so we can have class next week. So we, we might get ahead of the schedule for the first time in Mythgard Academy history. Um, but we'll see. So anyway, so we will have class next week. Um, continue, we'll, we'll continue discussing uh, the first phase here. Um, my goal is to finish the first phase and start off uh, on the second phase. I'm not so wild and, and uh, crazy as to think that we're going to get too much further than the end of the first phase. But uh, So if you just read to the end of the first phase uh, of the revised Quinta, you'll probably, you'll probably be, uh, be safe. Um, but we may. I'm not going to say that we're not going to foray at all into the second uh, phase. Who knows? But um, anyway, okay. Thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, I, I look forward to our continued discussion. Good to get to see you guys again next week as it happens. So I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.